So um, yeah, we're going to try to answer the questions that were submitted to us the best that we can and as biblically as possible. Uh, we we um, you know, want to emphasize a biblical perspective uh, in our evaluation of the Black Lives Matters movement because we want to engage with it as Christians who desire to honor God in the way that we think about life, in the way that we process the philosophies uh, that are, uh, are out there in the world. Uh, and another reason why we want to try and be as biblical as possible uh, as we're evaluating the BLM movement is because we understand that this this is a socio-political issue and it has a lot of emotions attached to it. You know, our desire as Christians who seek to glorify God uh, in our thinking and in our beliefs is to cut through the emotions, the politics, and any other things that might be in the way in order to make sure that we are faithful to our Lord. That's the main thing that we want to do. We want to be faithful to our Lord. Right? As Christians, we're people of the book. And so we want to make sure that we are submitting to the scriptures rather than the culture. Okay, so um, even by saying that, we're not trying to invalidate the importance of justice. We're not trying to invalidate the importance of compassion in this world. But we want to make sure that we keep the glory of God central in our lives, even when it comes to the way that we think about current events. Um, you know, after all, this is exactly what the Apostle Paul did in Acts 17 uh, when he was on Mars Hill. He engaged with the Athenians on an intellectual and cultural level. Just because we're people of faith doesn't mean that we do not have to have a critical intellectual engagement with the world. In fact, it is through our critical intellectual engagement with the world that we desire to show people their need for Christ. Because God is our creator, because his word is uh, our standard for truth, God gets to set the definitions. He sets the meanings of words. He determines morality. We don't determine morality. Culture doesn't determine morality. God determines morality. It's not like with the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, where after uh, in the in the uh, Supreme Court um, um, interviews, you know they they change the definition of of what preference is. Right? God's definitions don't change. They're set. So we look to Him as we wrestle through our thoughts on this topic. Now. Uh, we will allow for more questions to be, to be submitted during our time together. So uh, please private message either myself or Pastor Ray uh, your question, and we're going to we're going to try and make sure that we answer your questions. Uh, if you don't know how to do that, it's at the bottom of your screen. Um, it's the chat button. Uh, if you want a keyboard shortcut, it's Alt H. Right? Uh, well, at least for Windows users. I don't know what it is for you Apple users. Uh, <laughs> I guess it's the function button H probably, right? Um, <laughs> anyways, you'll figure it out. Just play around with it. Um, just, uh, yeah, just feel free to submit your questions to us. Uh, you know, we, we know that tonight we're probably not going to satisfy everyone. We know that some of you will probably leave here offended. Uh, but we ask that you use this evening as a launch pad a launch pad to wrestle with the scriptures and the implications of what the Bible teaches on the way that we live life. And please, don't just immediately turn towards one another and ask each other what they think. Don't, don't go targeting individuals, asking them for their response. We want you to instead ask yourself what you're thinking, what you're feeling, and why. 
Does what you're thinking, feeling, and wanting square with all that our Lord Jesus Christ has taught? Or is it only applicable to certain portions of the scriptures that he, he taught or, or that we see in the scriptures? Right? These are all questions that we must ask ourselves whenever we have difficulty with, with um, hard passages or when we're trying to evaluate uh, social issues in light of the scriptures. Right? We, we always want to make sure, like I said earlier, that we want to... Um, that we want to submit ourselves to the scriptures. Where the scriptures reign supreme, that's where we submit. Even if we, at, uh, at this point, don't fully, um, don't, don't fully get it. Right? We submit to the scriptures. So, um, we, and uh, like Ray said, uh, Ray and John said, we're assuming that you've listened to the podcast. So, so some of these questions, uh, you might, uh, we might refer ba defer back to the content in those episodes. But we do recognize that some of you have not uh, listened, and that's okay. You can go catch up with it later. Um, some some of the questions that we answered this uh, this evening uh, are also just um, they probably intersect with one another a lot too. So uh, if we're if we didn't quote your question exactly in the way that you wrote it, or if we don't quote uh, cover your question fully, it's not because we don't care. It's because we're kind of answering it in conjunction with uh, other questions. So. Um, so our first question that we have uh, this this evening is how do we biblically think through the proposition by people regarding defunding the police? How do we biblically think through the proposition by people regarding defunding the police? Um, so I'll start answering this question. It's a great question. And the first thing that we, we need to do is ask the question of definition. What is defunding the police? And who is calling for the defunding of the police? And what do they mean? In a Washington Post op-ed by Christy Lopez, a professor at Georgetown Law and a co-director of the university's innovative policing program, uh, she, she writes this, defunding the police means shrinking the scope of police responsibilities and shifting most of what government does to keep us safe to, uh, to entities that are better equipped to meet that need. It means investing more in mental health care and housing and expanding the use of community mediation and violence interruption programs. In practice, defunding means redirecting money from police budgets in cities where departments are disproportionately funded. However, not everyone shares Lopez's view on what defunding the police actually means. In a New York Times op-ed, uh, Maryam Kaba says this. She, she makes the case for the complete abolition of police. And she says that it is the only way to affect change because reform has not worked in the past. And so the goal is to make the police obsolete completely with a new vision for society that is built on cooperation instead of individualism and on mutual aid instead of self-preservation. There are, of course, other people who will tell you what they think defunding entails. I even saw recently that, the, that there was a candidate for the House of Representatives who said, not only should we defund the police, but we should defund the Pentagon as well. What is clear here is that there is no consensus on what defunding the police looks like. It could mean taking the money away from the police and red, uh, redis redistributing it to other services uh, and just keeping police presence to a minimum, or it could mean it could be a complete call to abolish the, the police 
um, in its entirety and replace it with a new form of government. Now, with what we've defined as um, defunding, now that we've defined what the defund the police movement is trying to do, let's understand what defund the police advocates really see as, a, as the problem and the solution to the problem. For defund the police advocates, the problem that society is facing, the, the problems that society is facing are due to the lack of resources available to the members of the community, particularly those who are poor. As a result, uh, as a result, the, the money that is poured uh, into the to the police, uh, you know, because the money is with the police, it's not with the poor. It's not fueling so social services and whatnot. Uh, another problem that exists is the problem of the police unfairly targeting black people and treating them poorly. And so the solution, the proposed solution to these problems is let's reduce the amount of money provided to police departments to give that money to those who need it more and to create community resources that uh, reduce the police altogether. Um, and that sounds good, right? It sounds it sounds okay, right? Oh, people need money. We should we should probably give them money. But the problem the problem with the defund the police movement is that their understanding of mankind and our greatest problem is absolutely unbiblical. In their minds, human beings are essentially good. If we surround ourselves with better circumstances, if the community is better at working together for the common good, if everyone has money, if we can take violence off the streets, uh, particularly police violence off the streets, then we're going to be able to live in harmony. That's what they, that's what they think. But biblically, this mindset, this worldview, it doesn't stand. Romans 3, 10 to 18 makes it very, very clear that people are not essentially good. There is none righteous, not even one. All of mankind has turned aside from God. All of mankind's sins are with our words and, and with our hearts. We're prone to the path of violence. James uh, tells us in, uh, in James 1, 13 to 15, that the problem with sin in our lives comes from our sinful hearts that desire what we know to be wrong. So pouring money, pouring more money into community resources in the hopes that the removal of bad circumstances will allow for the nation to live in harmony reflects, in a sense, part of the knowledge of God that he has placed in all of our hearts. Right? Wanting, wanting peace, that's, that's a part of what God has uh, set on our hearts. It's a return back to Eden. That's what we want. Right? A return back to sinlessness. That's what we want, and, and that's okay, right? That's okay, because God set that desire in our hearts. However, this peace and righteousness is not possible without God. Any movement that tries to achieve peace on this earth without God will fail. That's why all the utopian projects all fail. And that's ultimately seen in Revelation 20, when Satan gets locked up for a thousand years as Christ reigns on the earth with the saints. He reigns on the earth with the saints. Right? Satan's locked up. No evil being done. But then after those thousand years are up, God allows Satan to be released. And, and when he's released, he's still able to deceive the nations into following after him. And then God just strikes them down once they gather. It's kind of funny, actually, if you look at it. Right? Satan gathers all the armies of the earth who are opposed to God. And then God, in just one fell swoop, bam, you're gone. And that's the this is and what God is proving in that moment when He releases Satan and Satan goes out and deceives all of the nations of the earth is that Satan is not the problem. Right? Satan is not the problem. The sin that is residing in the hearts of mankind is. 
Because for a thousand years, Satan was locked up, couldn't do anything. And there was peace. But once Satan came back out, the hearts of mankind went after Satan, even though they saw the beauty of Christ, even though they lived under his glorious reign. They chose to follow after Satan because of the sin in their hearts. And so money and the removal of police is not the answer to a better society. Only Christ can achieve that. And regardless of whether or not people are successful in defunding the police, which is, by the way, not anything that we can stop since our elected officials are doing this action on our behalf, we always have to keep this in mind, that we want to try and live as Christ-like as possible to win others to Christ. I'll turn it over to Ray. Yeah, thanks. That's very helpful. And I do also want to clarify, too, that even when we talk about defunding police, we understand that not everyone in BLM are the only people that say that. There are other people that are like disassociated group that also believe that as well. Uh, but the reason why we are answering this question here is because on the website, they were, they're, they're just a very strong advocate for it. And, you know, even from a broad perspective, we have to understand that the authority that's, uh, that we have is that, oh, <laughs> It's, uh, it's, we have to understand that government is by law. It's an instrument of the Lord to check evil. Uh, Romans 13 tells us that. First Peter 2, verse 13, 17 tells us that. And generally, it's supposed to be uh, good. It's supposed to be designed by God to, to, to make sure that evil uh, doesn't uh, go rampant. And again, this doesn't mean that all police, uh, that there's no need for police reform, because we understand that like there, there might be things that they need to change, whether it's tactics or, or equipment or more training, whatever it may be. Uh, we understand that objectively, uh, these things may need to come in place. But the way BLM thinks about things is that all police is corrupt. Uh, that, and the Bible speaks against those that wield the, uh, uh, the sword in an abusive way. Uh, Proverbs 21, verse 12 tells us that. Um, let me read that to you guys. Proverbs 21, verse um, 12. The righteous one considers the house of wicked turned the wicked to ruin. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a sense in which uh, uh, God does not like those that use, uh, that are supposed to use their authority for good to, to use it um, for evil. Isaiah 1 talks about that. Isaiah 31, Jeremiah 21, Ezekiel 34. Uh, God grants government authority to rule and they are going to be held accountable for their action. And I think that's also one very different thing in which um, when you think about that, like ultimately they have to give an account to the Lord. Um, they can give account to the city or to the, whoever, but the one that they need to fear most is God and they need to think in those terms. Uh, that's why we're always emphasizing more on like, it's not so much the structural thing because a person can be can can have the structure or the police can have the structure but still be uh, corrupted on the inside they can just find different ways to uh, to do evil but the lord sees all of that and they're called to help they're held accountable for the action again our job isn't to figure out uh or reconfigure the government our job is to um is, is to be faithful in the way that we respond to the government uh and that is in a lot of ways to submit to them uh, and, and to honor them and to respect them, uh, which kind of leads to our second question, and, and it's this, what should our reaction be and our action be when it comes to police brutality? What should our reaction and action be to police brutality? I think um, sorrow is, 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 we should be sorrow over all unrighteousness. Uh, and we should, have, we should be praying for God's justice and righteousness to be made known to the world and that people can turn to him. 
And it's always a tragic when people that are made in the image of God are treated poorly, even if the pe person is um, is a, a criminal doing something bad and they and they get beat up. It still should break us because that just shows us that there's something wrong with the world, um, and it only makes sense if you have a biblical worldview. The biblical worldview understands that the law is written in our hearts, and this goes counter to what the pluralistic society in a postmodern world that talks about how there's no right and wrong but yet when we see police brutality or when we see um things that are just horrific to look at something in us triggers and say like hey this is this is not right uh and the bible does have an answer to that and that's because in romans 1 it tells us the law is written in our hearts and when we see things like a police brutality or a misuse of of, of force um this is actually one of those rare occasions where where biblical reality shines through and that there is indeed something wrong here in the world. Um, and you, uh, we should mourn for those that, uh, that are in pain. Um, but at the same time, we have to understand that we don't have all the facts about the scene. Um, we live in a world where they are telling us that both of whether there's conservative news outlets or liberal news outlets are intentionally trying to manipul manipulate us. And yet we still fall into trap and in thinking that, oh, it has to be this one view or there has to be this other view. But in reality, um, we we don't really, we can't really investigate because we're not there. You know, we're not actually on the ground. We can look at the um, all the evidence that's, that's presented. Um, so when we say that we did our research, we have to have like a, we have to, I mean, that's almost like saying like, you know, like, that's actually not a wise thing to say because Googling something, looking at four or five articles isn't really research. Like imagine doing that for a paper at school. You're, you're not going to pass with that. Um, and in the same way, in a much, much more uh, serious way in terms of with these things, um, we don't know all the evidence. Only the people there know generally what's going on, but God knows everything. Um, and, you know, whenever we see someone get hurt, um, we have to understand that God has compassion for those individuals, you know, they're made in the image of God. And even if, the, if it's a criminal that gets killed, God doesn't delight in anyone perishing. The, the people, um, I mean, the Bible's clear that God doesn't want anyone to perish. Um, I think one of the inappropriate responses is like, is the kind of cavalier attitude when, you know, someone gets killed, even though um, they, may, they may be doing something wrong because, you know, people have entered into eternity we don't know whether or not the person is a believer or not. Um, and we hope that the person is, but we know that, um, you know, if they've entered into eternity without Christ, that that's way worse than, um, than what they've experienced here on earth. Uh, but the world is broken. The world is broken and we aren't going to know exactly um, how to deal with every single case. But whenever we see some sort of harm done to anyone made in the image of God, it should break us. Roger, anything you want to add? What was the next question? Uh, yeah, that's that's a great that's a great point, Ray. Um, you know, I think um, when we uh, when you mentioned that that God doesn't delight in anyone to perish, right? It reminds me of uh, of an article that uh, John Piper wrote uh, after um, after uh, I believe it uh, I believe it was the seals after they they killed Osama bin Laden, right? And for Americans. For us, because we remember 9-11, we're just like, yeah, you know, good, good job. You know, we're glad that Osama bin Laden's dead. And uh, Piper wrote a very sobering article afterwards reminding us, like, hey, guys, don't celebrate this death. Or don't celebrate this death because God does not delight in anyone to perish. He wants all people to be saved, right? This, there is a soul that went into eternity. And that's hard for us as Americans to hear. And that's hard for us as Americans to hear because 
Uh, you know, we remember the tragedy of 9-11. We get angry when we think about all those innocent lives that were lost because of what Osama bin Laden did. But what Piper wants us to remember is that, uh, that God wants all people to come to him. And, and, that, and his forgiveness is broad enough, it's great enough to cover even those sins. Right? And so uh, I love that you brought that up. Uh, you know, it's it's a it's even something that reminds us that uh, you know when it comes to some of the perpetrators of these crimes against Black people, um, or you know the when, uh, police brutality when, when it comes to their crimes, right? That you shouldn't hate the police, and that you shouldn't hate these people, these individuals who are lost in their sins. Instead, we should be praying for them that they would find salvation, right? Because if we love them. If we love them and we desire for them too to be saved, we know that that sin that they committed in brutalizing someone, in murdering someone, is not is not so strong that God cannot forgive. I was just uh, listening to uh, re-listening to an old podcast where they were talking about um, about uh, Bothan John, uh, the uh, young man who was killed by Amber Geyer. Um, and uh, Amber Geyer is a police officer, and um, Bothan's um, brother, in, in, after the trial was over, after Amber was uh, convicted of um, of murdering his uh, his brother, um, went up and said, "I desire for you to know the gospel. Right? I, I and if you truly are sorry, then I forgive you." Right? He offered her the gospel because he loved her. Yeah, he's hurting, he lost his brother. But he offered her the gospel because he knows that Bothan would have wanted her to know the gospel too. And that's such a powerful, powerful uh, reminder of how important the gospel is and how no one is beyond redemption. And that's what we have to remember in this, right? Because, um, you know, with cancel culture, there is no redemption, but that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says there is redemption, and so we gotta fight for that. All right, so the next question, uh, we're gonna rephrase this a little bit. Uh, it's a rather long question, but uh, basically the question is this, is it possible that the biblical category of the vulnerable can be expanded beyond the widow, foreigner, and the poor to include race and ethnicity? And then there's a second question that's kind of in there too. Is there an objective standard of oppression or is it relative to a culture or context? Um, you know, when, when the Bible speaks about those who are vulnerable in society, it's not intending to be a, pro, a comprehensive list of all uh, who are considered vulnerable. For, for instance, uh, if you just do a word search in the Bible, you're not going to find people with disabilities mentioned in the Old Testament laws as those who are, uh, who are in need of care in society. And that doesn't mean that the Bible doesn't care about those who, are, who have disabilities. Um, or those who have special needs, right? That's the, but that's not the point of the Bible, right? The point, um, and, and this point is not brought up to say that uh, we should therefore not care about those who are not specifically mentioned in the Bible, but to demonstrate that the Bible is not necessarily trying to be a comprehensive guide regarding all who need protections in the scriptures. And so, is it possible that the category of the vulnerable expands further than what the Bible clearly identifies in scripture? Absolutely. Absolutely. However, this is where we have to be careful, careful when we talk about vulnerability. Because vulnerability in the Bible referred more to those who were uh, 
uh, referred more to than, than those who were helpless in society. For instance, um, for instance, in a more agricultural and patriarchal society, widows were particularly vulnerable because they had a difficult time providing for themselves and their young children if anything happened to their husbands, because it was harder for them to find uh, find work that could provide for their families. However, when you go to 1 Timothy 5, we actually see that Paul restricts what aid can go to certain windows. Uh, sorry, widows, not windows. Uh, widows. And this is not because he hates particular widows, but because there were some widows who needed help and some widows who didn't, even though they're technically in the vulnerable category. Right? The widows who were put on the list were those who were, who were Paul says, widows indeed. Right? These were the ones who were completely alone. They had no family to help them. The widows who had family to help them, it was their family's responsibility to care for, uh, for their mother. And that's not to minimize the pain of those who were widowed and had surviving family as well, but the one who the ones who were truly most vulnerable were the ones who were completely alone, especially if they were on the older side. And so when it comes to vulnerability, just because you fit the general category, the general category of who is vulnerable, it doesn't mean that the person uh, that in question is qualified as vulnerable. And we would agree with that today, right? Because uh, if we were to say, if we were to say, like some, like uh, like the Black Lives Matters movement says that all Black people are vulnerable and that all Black people share the same experiences in America, you would actually get pushback from some other uh, Black people in America saying, "No, that is not my experience." Right? They would say that. No, that's not my experience. And we have to be careful of broadly categorizing, um, uh, broadly categorizing um, people and, and classifying them as vulnerable when they might not all be vulnerable, when they might not share the same perspective. Uh, we, we see that right now. Um, uh, we see that right now, uh, just in, in the election talk, right? Um, and who black people are expected to vote for. I'm not going to go more into that, right? But but basically. Right? We just have to be careful of broadly categorizing people into or putting people into these categories as if they're, uh, they all have the same experience. Right? For those of you who are of uh, Cantonese American uh, um, descent, right? you don't share my experiences and I, don't, I might not share yours. Right? So we can't say that, that, um, that all Cantonese people uh, experience XYZ. Right? We, can't, we can't say that because my experiences are different than yours. Right? So that's why we have to be careful about who we define as those who are vulnerable. Um, and uh, we, yeah, we want to make sure that we don't perpetuate the problem as we make these broad statements regarding people that may or may not uh, be generally ap applicable. And so um, so someone did ask a, a quick follow-up question uh, on the um, on the passage that specifically mentions widows, that's First Timothy five, um, and uh, it's uh, in the first uh, sixteen verses of First Timothy five, or uh, sorry, verses three to sixteen. You can see um, some of those, some of what Paul says about widows there. Ray, do you have anything to add on that one? The first half of that question. Sorry, uh, no, I think that's. Uh, I, I, I second everything that you're saying. I think 
uh, we'll then one of the other questions down the line is that it's going to similar to this one in terms of just like yeah we have to understand people's hurts um, but as a church I think we need to be able to understand and discern that um, a lot of the passages that regards to the church or even to Old Testament Israel um, these were followers of God and this is their expectation of how they're supposed to live um, the world sometimes wants what the Bible promises without God and I think that's why why um, and the world doesn't understand that they're seeing they're saying things like, how come you Christians are not doing more um, uh, you know they want the blessings of, of, of you know people in the church or in Old Testament Israel but they want it without the Lord uh, and that's what we're trying to cry out all the time like no you can't you can have these things in the context of the church um, but you're not going to have that in the world because the world doesn't want God um, and I think that's where it's the difference between um, the, how the world operates and versus how the the Bible teaches how Christians should operate. Christians should operate out of a submission to God's word, um, whereas the world just does whatever they want. And, and their needs change all the time. Um, but then, you know, we as Christians understand that the greatest need is not something temporal or, um, you know, and, then, and it's not to say we don't care about those needs. Uh, these things like, you know, feeding the poor, these things should be a means to those ends, uh, to the gospel end. Um, so, the vulnerable, they will always be with us, which means we have an infinite amount of ministry possibilities. Um, I'm really grateful for some, some of you that have a heart for um, the people that are you know, destitute and, and suffering. Um, and I just want to encourage you to keep going. Uh, prior to the COVID thing, you know, Zach and I were at the Tenderloins just trying to witness to people doing the same thing because we understand that uh, the greatest need isn't to try to fix, try to make them comfortable in this life, uh, but that they are right with the Lord for all of eternity. Thanks, bro. Uh, so the sec the second part of that question uh, is there an objective standard or of of oppression, or is it relative to a culture uh, or context? Um, it's very similarly, uh, of course, right? Of course, there can be some subjectivity when it comes to the definition of oppression but even when i say that right, we have to be careful of uh what we mean by um what we mean by oppression right the uh, the dictionary definition of oppression merely states that oppression is unjust or cruel uh exercise of authority or power uh, the secondary definition in, in in the dictionary is that oppression is something that oppresses especially in being an unjust or excessive exercise of power. Now, obviously, the dictionary forgot that you can't define a word with the word, but whatever. Um, however, you know, when you look up the word oppression in Wikipedia, you see this whole list. Now, I understand Wikipedia is not an academic uh, is, is not an academic source, but it's it's interesting, right, to see what is on uh, what is on the minds of the culture, what is on what, the pulse of the culture, right? And uh, there's all sorts of oppression that exists. And so there's no consensus on what oppression truly is in light of the different ways that oppression can exist. Because basically oppression is anything that prevents people from getting what they want or doing what they want to do. Uh, so when someone says that there is oppression today, we wouldn't necessarily disagree that there are forms of legitimate oppression that exist today, but we do want to make sure that we're clarifying what we mean by oppression. And the supposed proof of oppression 
that people use in the BLM movement is through income inequality in the, in the lives of minorities, particularly black people. But that's not, that's not oppression. We talked about that in the, the fifth um, Black Lives Matter evaluation podcast. And basically, um, and there's a there's a whole theology that I went through when it comes to class and uh, and uh, income inequality. So uh, t- take a look at uh, a look at that. But you know, uh, we do acknowledge that there was a type of this kind of oppression in the past, right? We all we're all aware of by now uh, of the practice of redlining. We're all aware of that. We're all aware of uh, people who uh, were denied even jobs because of their ethnicity. We know that. Um, and that's why that's why you know even in sports Jackie Robinson is such a revered uh, figure is because he broke the color barrier so we, we know that there there are um, there are evidences uh, of oppression in the past and there might even still be some trickle down effects of prejudice actions in the past however what we have to be careful of is not everyone is entitled to the same standard of living as others what people want now uh, uh, when we're talking about oppression um, is they want liberation one uh, they want freedom from their white oppressors but but secondly what people want uh, in, in this movement is equality now equality is not the same thing as equity equality pursues a desired outcome while equity evaluates things according to the truth. In 1 Kings 3, 16 to 28, this is, um, the case, this is the example of Solomon. Okay, so 1 Kings 3, 16 to 28. Solomon is presented with a case of two prostitutes who are fighting over uh, who a baby belonged to since one of the mothers accidentally smothered her child in her sleep. And so she was trying to replace her dead child with her friend's child. Now, Solomon determined who the real mother was by offering to cut the baby in two. And of course, this was a ploy. He wasn't actually going to cut the baby in two. But the fake mother, she accepted this judgment because neither of them would have a child that was alive as a result. That's equality. The real mother rejected that outcome and was willing to allow for her friend to have her baby because she loved her child and did not want him to die. And so Solomon ruled on equity. He found out what the truth was and he determined who the real mother was was as a result and so it was in this particular case that the world knew that solomon was wise and in doing so he demonstrated that the god of israel he is also wise he's a god of equity psalm 9 8 tells us that the lord will judge the world in righteousness he will execute judgment for the peoples with equity we who have placed our faith in jesus christ can all affirm that god is not unfair in salvation okay that god is not unfair in salvation um sorry before i um before i move on do have some uh some people asking about the difference between equity and equality again so basically uh equality is the um the desire is um is basically wanting a desired outcome whereas equity Equity pursues um, the truth. Okay? Equality pursues a desired outcome. And equity evaluates things according to the truth. Okay? Desired outcome versus truth. And so, you know, when we look at, at God and how he, how he offers us salvation, 
Right? He does so in equity. Romans 1 tells us that the truth about God is in the heart of all men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The gospel is available to all. It's available to all who will repent of their sins and believe. Now, if God was concerned about equality, then that standard goes out the window. Right? Who cares? Jesus died. His, his, death, uh, his death covers everyone, so everyone's covered. It doesn't matter. Right? But that's not just. Because if God forgave everyone of their sins when they have not repented of their sins, that's not justice. No, that's not justice. Right? It would be injustice because God makes it clear that the only way that we are allowed to, to uh, experience saving faith is through his grace and, and through his grace to give us faith to repent of our sins. Okay, when we repent of our sins, that's when we are unified with Christ, and so we identify with his death and his resurrection. If people have not become one with Christ, if they are still in their sins and they receive salvation, that's not justice. That's not justice. Right? So God rules with equity, and that's why, brothers and sisters, that's why even though we as believers want all to be saved, Sometimes when we lose loved ones who are unsaved, we might be upset at first, but we know that we can't shake our fist at God and say, why? Why did you do this? They had a chance. They heard the gospel. They knew in their hearts what the truth was, and they refused. And I don't say this to you as someone who is calloused. I've experienced this multiple times in my life. I know right now that my grandfather is experiencing the full wrath of God upon him because of his rejection of the gospel. But God is not unjust. God is not unjust. I love my grandpa dearly. I wish he, I wish he humbled himself and repented of his sins, but he didn't. And God was fair. He rules with equity. Okay? He rules with equity. And so when we talk about oppression, that's something that we have to be really, really careful about when we are trying to define it. Because if we're talking about justice, then more often than not, these claims of oppression are not really over wrongs being done but are based on a perceived inequality of outcome. And that's why we have to be careful when we talk about oppression, because a lot of people mainly are claiming oppression because of a perceived inequality of outcomes. And by desiring equality of outcome, those who hold the equality of outcome as most important engage in partiality. Right? Favoritism of one particular group over another. And, and that's a problem that is not just in America, it's all over the world. Right? Because the sin nature of people makes us partial. It makes us partial. And that's why um, we're not trying to show partiality to anyone because of, uh, of their income level, what language they speak, the color of someone's skin. We don't do that because we see all people as important, all people as valuable before God because they all bear the image of God. It's not elevation of one uh, particular person over another. Black Lives Matters, they want partiality. 
wait, that they want the favoring of black people over and against everyone who is not black. And that's not justice. That's not equity. That's partiality. And so rather than being partial, the church ought to have a different type of witness. Ray? Yeah, actually, it's good. Uh, um, Roger kind of organized the question this way, a certain way, so it's kind of smoothed things out. Because the next question is actually about favoritism. And uh, this individual uh, listed certain verses, Leviticus 19.15 and Exodus 23.23, seem to command against impartiality in upholding justice, especially, uh, specifically remaining impartial towards the poor and the rich. Does this render the concept of leveling the playing field in society, pursuing equity unbiblically? Or is favoritism, James chapter 2, verse 1, different from paying particular attention to the poor? With regards to racial issues in America, should Christians advocate for a leveling the playing field in education, healthcare, employment, et cetera, for groups of those who seem to be at a disadvantage? And this is what I was alluding to earlier, that in both cases, these are actually in context of God's people. Um, it is interesting when they say, like, the world says, like, though the separation of church and state. So even if we offered a solution, they don't want it because the solution is that if you are part of God's family, uh, you should be treated well. Like, if there's any needs, we should, the church should be, will, is, it must be willing to give up whatever then um, help you. That's what we see in the book of Acts. They're sold everything because every needs are met. And even with education, you know, we should be able to like tutor or be able to lend a hand to help one another in the church because we're a family of God. Um, the, the, the Bible offers something unique uh, to the church. Now, what about non-believers? What about those that, um, what about those that are outside of the church? I do think that in both even Israel and the New Testament were called to be lights of the world. Uh, in Israel, they will stay in one place isolated. And then as they you know, care about the poor, we went through Judges and Ruth last year. And remember, Ruth was a Gentile. And because Boaz was faithful, uh, this Gentile person, I mean, she was saved because uh, she was with Naomi, but um, she, uh, Boaz was this, was, was this amazing testimony of God's faithfulness. Um, and Israel was supposed to be like that. They were supposed to let um, the refugee and poor grab a little bit from the side of the, you know, the fields and let them so that they can see that God is faithful and that God is good and he provides. In the New Testament, the church is called to do good things. Um, our priority is, in you know, all, all these verses I've mentioned, is in the context of the church, but the Bible does tell us and, and commands us to go and, and win the lost, to invite people into the kingdom. Uh, the only problem I see with the church is that we don't take God's word seriously. So in a sense, um, what we need is, is a repentance from our apathy. Uh, we should care for the poor, uh, again, with the, with the intent of, of this person coming to know Christ, not with the intent of just trying to fix the world uh, you know, the, the problems in this world, uh, because we know that there's no way that the church is able to fix every single problem, um, because that's just, we, that's just the fallen world. Until Christ returns, there's always going to be issues going on um, in people's lives. Um, and again, I think for us as Christians, as we think about uh, this, uh, you know, caring for the afflicted, I think we just need to be mindful of individuals in our lives who do not know Christ, that have needs, and you, know, you try to develop good relationships with them, uh, care for them, and then tell them why you're so compassionate. You're a compassionate person because God is compassionate towards us. Why are you so kind? Because God is kind towards us. Um, the more we represent Christ out in the world, uh, the more people are going to be drawn and are intrigued by the church. And as they see the church, they see what the world is supposed to be. Uh, when a group of people that 
uh, love each other, worshiping the Lord. Um, you know, be, uh, they're willing to uh, serve one another. That's that's how the world's supposed to be. Uh, but we can't have that in the world. The world doesn't want it. Uh, they may want the results, but they don't want the source. And that's why they're always like, you know, there's no answer to the world's problem because they're, they're again, their desires are always different. Their solutions are always different. And you know, the, even the needs of the, the oppressed group people are always going to be different. But the churches would be this constant. We should be known by our love um, in the context of the church, especially those in the church, but also those that outside the church as well. Um, so I think I'm trying to make us think practically here. Uh, think of what, uh, just think about the people in your life or even like in your neighborhood or just places around you. Um, uh, you know, I know we're in sheltered place right now, but just still try to keep developing those relationships uh, so that you can share the gospel and, um, and bring them to something better than uh, what this world has to offer. Roger, anything you want to add? Uh, no, not really. You covered that pretty, pretty uh, well, brother. Um, yeah, I'm good. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the next question we're going to have. I know we have a lot of questions, and we're like, yeah, we're, we're getting kind of late. But um, next question is: I've recently listened to Just Thinking podcast, and then it says it's a social justice movement in genders and people entitlement mentality. People believe that they are owed some form of restitution or preferential treatment because of some injustice, real or perceived, that has been done to them. But uh, this is a profound misunderstanding of both the nature of man and of God. How should Christians think about scriptures like uh, Job 29, verse 12, 17, Job 31, verse 13 to 21, where justice seems uh, to not just be, uh, wait, sorry, where justice seems to be not just punishing wrong to it, but uh, meeting certain needs. And are there needs limited to food, clothes, shelter? Are there other rights that Christians are called to defend? And does that necessitate perpetuate entitlement mentality? Long question. Um, uh, basically, it's just, are there ways in which we can think about uh, that we can help people without making them think that this is entitlement mentality? And again, it's a very simple answer. It's, it's, not, it's not necessarily new. But I think when they understand the gospel, that changes everything. Because in not just BLM, but the culture as a whole, think that they do deserve something because they ultimately believe that they're a good person. And when they think they're a good person, they think, why don't they have good uh, results in life? Um, and as Christians, I think when we go from the gospel on, um, you know, this is where uh, it changes everything. When I mentioned that the church should be a place of that, that cares for uh, needs, I'm not saying that the church is supposed to be like a place that only gives without expecting people to live a certain way. Uh, First Thessalonians tells us that, uh, you know, those who don't work should not eat. So there's, it's not just like we're just giving things away and then that's it, uh, though that's fine. But the main goal is that they know Christ and as they know Christ, they obey the Lord. And, um, and you know, as part of um, understanding where you are in light of uh, who God is, as well as what is expected of you as you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ. Um, and, you know, again, I've seen this in, in different churches. I've met seminary students in the past that used to be drug addicts that repented and um, denied the, the, you know, alcoholic anonymous 12-step thing and then just like leaned into um, the gospel and repentance. And then they lived their life according to God's word and they're successful now because they want to ultimately worship God and give their whole life as an act of worship to the Lord. Um, so how do we meet the needs? I think we should meet those needs, uh, but just understand that when we meet those needs, there's a limit to it because 
they're not going to ch it's not going to change their in their their heart it's not going to change their um, internal person if we just do the needs without uh, sharing the gospel to them sorry roger anything you want to add yeah so uh, i just want to make a quick note this is uh, somewhat unrelated i you know what what uh, pastor ray has mentioned in terms of of needs and and um and how we care for other people is is you know absolutely spot on is what we need to do uh, however um you know we have to be careful and so this is a side note but we do want to be careful when it comes to how we use scripture you know for instance when we talk about job 29 job 30 uh 31 um this if, if you if you look there if you look at those verses this is not at all uh something uh where justice is um is is being called for and um, I'm not trying to attack the questioner. I just want to make sure that all of us are just mindful of how we uh, how we understand certain scriptures. And uh, so, thank you, person who uh, who submitted this question. Um, basically, I, I want us to be careful with how we understand the context of certain passages, because uh, people who are social uh, justicians, uh, people in the church who are advocating for particular. Uh, for particular cares uh, based off of certain proof text, they're going to tell you this Bible verse tells us that we must do X, Y, Z. Uh, you know, if you look up Job 29 30, uh, and Job 31, you're going to see that Job is basically recounting all the good things that he's done in his life as he's explaining to God why he doesn't deserve to be punished. And he's asserting his integrity. These are not things that are uh, that you would just say like, oh, well, I guess we should be doing that, right? You wouldn't be doing that. Um, a favorite verse of a lot of uh, a lot of people who are for social justice is Micah six eight. I bet you you could quote it to me by memory. Right? What uh, uh, he has told you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Right? We hear that, and we're being told by other pastors that this is how we ought to be. And you have to read it in context. You have to read it in context because Micah 6 is not just, uh, is not limited to just verse 8. Just like, uh, you know, Matthew 7, do not judge lest you be judged, is not just, uh, is, does not just end there. Right? Micah 6, 8 has a context. God is going after people who are wicked. He's calling them out. And he's telling them that he is going to judge them. And it's because of their failure that, he is going to judge them. Right, so Micah 6, 8 is not, it should not be your life verse where you're saying, oh, what does God require of me? He requires me to do these things. Yes, he does. Right, but Micah 6, 8 appears in a context. Another, uh, another passage that people like to misuse and abuse is Matthew 25, 40 to 46. We, uh, we do kindness to those who are the least of these. Right, to the least of these. And we use this as a, um, we use this as a justification of why we need to uh, to care for people who um, who are thirsty, who are hungry, uh, who um, uh, who need clothes. And this is not at all a denial of the fact that we should care for people's needs. Okay, this is not a denial of uh, of the fact that we should care for people's needs. But who is Jesus talking about here in Matthew twenty five? He's not talking about the world. He's talking about believers. Okay, you do the homework, you look at it, but he is talking about believers. He's talking about brothers, right? Fellow Christians, fellow followers of Christ. 
So you do the homework. You take a look at that. Right? But the least of these is not all these unbelieving people who are in the world. Um, we should care for them. Okay, So don't hear what I'm not saying. I am not saying that people who are not Christians do not deserve our compassion, our care, and our love. I am not saying that. Okay, I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is that you have to be really, really careful when you're looking at Scripture and figuring out who the one another's that we're, uh, or who we are to practice the one another's with. Right? We're, the one another's are practiced with believers, and we have to be careful about that. So it's a minor corrective, but it's an important corrective as we're talking about social issues. Oh, and uh, let's see. That was the what was the Matthew reference about the least of these? Well, uh, when you go uh, look at it, it's Matthew twenty-five verses forty to forty-six. It's a very very common passage used by people to talk about why it's important for us to uh, go to third world countries and whatnot. Okay, thanks for that question. Okay, um, but yeah, again, it is important for us to care for those needs. It's just we have to be super careful about how we use scripture to back up uh, our desire to care, okay? Um, okay, so next question. Uh, what is the most biblical way to think about, to think and talk about race and ethnicity in the church? So, um, Brother Ray, what would you like to? Yeah, I think, um, I think there's, there's has to be some understanding that, um, the biblical world teaches that all of us are going to have some sort of unique suffering in life. Uh, but we're called um, to understand like trials. So whatever ethnicity you are and whatever culture you want to understand, be sympathetic towards them. Um, God tells us that trials are used by means to mature us, to, to cause us to be more Christ-like. And at the same time, the Christian are called to come alongside those that are hurting. Romans uh, 12 and you weep with those who weep in Romans 15 verse 1 tells us those who are strong you bear those uh, um, the burden of those who are weak and the same with Galatians 2 bear the burdens of one another so if there are those people that are hurting um, if you are one of those individuals that are hurting you should be able to uh, be able to talk to anyone in the church whether it be your uh, you know people you have in a small group or elders you should be willing to you should be able to unload all your burden on them and as people are receiving we should be willing to listen as well um, but I think there also needs to be a crucial understanding that when the world is telling us we need to hear your story, we need to you need to hear my story. I get that, but what they miss is that they try to define their life based on the suffering. Um, they make themselves think that this is all that you are, and you know there's a lot of almost like a, a self pity, self loathing, which is really a form of pride. Um, and uh, again, you're not defined by your suffering. Uh, you may. In your suffering, however, if you want to think it biblically, you may be able to get a glimpse of how Jesus, who suffered the greatest injustice, uh, he's one that was perfect, he was holy, but yet he had to suffer uh, the pains and the wrath of God for someone else, namely um, the church. Uh, so our soul identity is in Christ alone. Um, things like, we will talk more about this in a sec, but intersectionality and critical race theory tells you that your background is dominance, that that is the most important quality. They do it in a subtle way. They, they try to make it seem as though um, you know, these things matter more than other things. Um, or, or they say like, this is more important in this season of, of, of history. Um, 
but in reality, we know as Christians that we're not defined by those things. These things, like our ethnicity, it's it's a it's a gift from the Lord. Uh, in, in Isaiah speaks about how every tribe and tongue will get to uh, be able to worship the Lord. Uh, so that's great. That's 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 a great thing. But what is our chief? As Christians, we understand that our chief identity is in Christ, um, and we hope that other people understand that. That um, that is very liberating if you find that your identity is in Christ and not in something that is. You know, your oppression or things that you've gone through those things are, are real and not dismissing it uh understanding that those things should be a means by which you look forward to heaven as opposed to trying to fix the things in this world yeah i agree i you know i think um appreciating and and um and valuing one another and loving one another is is huge whenever we're talking about race and ethnicity in the church um, you know, for, for my college experience, I had the, the, the uh, well, I'll use the word, I know it's charged now, but I had the privilege to go to uh, the master's university. And the master's university, uh, we, we have a lot of international students. Yes, it's predominantly white, but uh, we have a lot of international students. And, um, and one of the things that they continue to emphasize to us as we were, uh, as we're talking about God's uh, love for the nations is the importance of embracing uh, the people who are different from us, right? Wanting to understand where they're coming from, uh, wanting to uh, appreciate their culture, wanting to appreciate who they are as people because they are fellow image bearers of God, because they are brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. When we talk about race and ethnicity in the church, uh, you know, we want to have we want to uh, to get on eye level with one another. We want to share uh, those experiences. We're not going to deny experiences, right? I, I can't deny that someone has experienced racism because I'm not I'm not them. Right? I wasn't in their life. I can't deny that. Just like no one can deny that I've experienced that as well, right? And so we have to be super super careful, super understanding of one another, to love one another, and and uh, to appreciate those differences. Uh, understanding that, you know, in the future, on that great day when we all get caught up and uh, we uh, caught up in, in, in the clouds with our Lord and Savior, with saints from all over the world, that heaven is going to be filled with people uh, from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Right? And so as a result, you know, uh, we just want to be understanding. Right? We don't want to assume things. We want to try and avoid uh, we want to try and avoid uh, being offensive, needlessly offensive. Um, and uh, yeah, we just we just want to, to love on people and to appreciate the differences there. Right? Be careful of having that America first uh, identity, but to um, understand that there are saints in other parts of the world uh, and they might worship God a little differently. And, and that's OK. Right? So we want to appreciate those differences. We want to value and love those people as well. So, um, yeah, we, we just basically want to appreciate and value differences because um, it's the same God that we worship. Okay, so next question is, what are your thoughts on critical race theory, also known as CRT and intersectionality, and the influence of these worldviews, ways of thinkings, uh, thinking on a movement like BLM? Can you please share some of the dangers or concerns that could lead to unbiblical ways of thinking? Now, we've probably covered this in our podcast, um, but, um, oh, yeah, did you, you want to hop in? 
Sorry, my mouse got weird, but I, but I can answer this one. Um, yeah, I, I, I think on the first one, I explained kind of the history of, uh, of, of all of this thinking. Uh, but to summarize, uh, critical theory, if you were to think of it in like a Pokemon, that's like level one, the first form. Critical race theory is like the second form. But the common thread between both of them is this, is that there is an oppressive class of people, and whatever it may be, uh, is usually uh, some sort of race or, or money status. And uh, the solution to get rid of the oppressor is to overthrow them. Um, now, I, I always find that that's, I understand where that's coming from, but I do, I, I'm just surprised that they haven't thought through what that means because it's going to be a perpetual cycle, right? You know, if you guys read the book Animal Farm, Remember Animal Farm? There's like the it's like book of like all these little animals that revolted against the humans, and then later on the animals, one of the one group of the animals became the leaders, the pigs. They became like um, the oppressors themselves. And one of the things that's dangerous about CRT is ultimately it's a denial of all authority, and it's a denial of authority in the next generation. Every generation is going to be some sort of group that feels oppressed, and they're going to try to overthrow it. This is why it's it's a never-ending cycle. Uh, it will just always be one group that thinks that they are right and they're going to overthrow it. And then another group's going to say, hey, we don't want that. And they're going to overthrow it again and again and again. And there's no peace. Uh, that's what um, critical race theory and, and critical theory is generally what it's about. Um, why that's dangerous in, uh, why that's dangerous is because in the context of the church, they're saying things like, oh, well, why are men the only ones that are called to be elders? Uh, why can't women be elders? Why can't women be pastors? So they look at the authority that's in scripture and they're saying, you know, we need to overthrow that. We need to find different ways to interpret scripture. We need to find different ways to, to lead the church. And that's where it gets dangerous because now you're denying what God has set as standard. Um, the, the time in the world will change in terms of who is the oppressor, but in our uh, in scripture it tells us that we are God, we are slaves to the Lord. We obey him uh, as Christians throughout time. We obey him and him alone. Intersectionality, uh, so that's critical race theory and critical race theory. Uh, intersectionality, that's like the, like the tally system, like, okay, I am of this race, I am of this gender, I am of this social class, and the more type of oppressive things you have, the more points you have, and more validity you have in terms of uh, talking about whatever situation may be. Uh, and again, I understand where they're coming from because, you know, they, they talk about how like, oh, we're oppressing these, all of these different ways and no one understands us. And again, as from a Christian worldview, the danger in that is, again, in the context of the church, they start listing, if you're in the church and you start listing all of your, your um, in the negatives, like all things that, or negative, like all things as wrong in life and uh, your own oppression or in the the reverse, which is a pride, like list all your success. Both of them are wrong. Both extremes are wrong. Paul in Philippians 2 tells us that he has all of these credentials. He was like a Pharisee. He was like born from the tribe of Benjamin, but he considered all of the, that rubbish compared to the surpassing value of Jesus Christ. Um, so that's why biblically both of these are wrong because it, it goes against uh, the, the core identity of the Christian. It's, it's that we are first and foremost uh, believers made the image of God to serve the Lord and submit to him. Um, critical race theory wants to overthrow that. Intersectionality wants to put more emphasis on, on what either your uh, things that are going wrong with your life or things that, that God's gone well in your life. And both is a form of pride. And I think um, Christians, we need to be humble knowing that uh, we are where we are, whether we are whether race or money, all that is because God has given those things to us. Uh, even the little of things is it's, it's an act of divine grace and mercy. Um, and I think that's how we can quickly summarize uh, this one. Uh, but I, I have 
you can go back to the first podcast when I kind of traced everything. Um, but that's really the, why it's dangerous in the church. Um, the next question is, uh, what is the church going to do in terms of reaching out to a local community in light of recent events? Now, this question came, I think, it was around the time when pandemic was like kind of just started. So it's hard to do this because of, you know, shelter in place, but there's encouragement because things are getting better. Things are opening up. So now I think for us, for those you know, six, seven months where we're kind of that, you know, we can't do evangelism. Now we need to take advantage of it. I know some of you are actually going to like SF park, or Golden Gate park to do some evangelism. Excel still more, keep doing it. Um, my wife and I are like going to the park and we're hoping that we could be able to, you know, six feet, talk to other parents and you know, make and you know, share the gospel with them, whatever it may be. Um, but yeah, I think uh, what we want to do in terms of serving a local community is just make godly relationships. Um, and if there's our brothers uh, that are, you know, going through some trials, we want to care for them. Um, so I'm assuming this is what it means by local community in terms of non-Christians, but yeah, it, it just, be mindful, be intentional, um, know where your environment is, uh, and then just be able to make an impact in where you're at. Anything with that, Roger? Yeah, you know, when it comes to, um, when it comes to how we can uh, most effectively respond uh, to some of the more, um, the difficult events that happen in our society, this is kind of why uh, it's so cool that God has so many of us in different uh, in different vocations, right? Because we are able to come into contact with uh, people that others in the church might not have contact with, or, or you know, even the ability to reach out to. Um, and so uh, God has you exactly where He wants you, uh, and that's the reason why your testimony. Your presence in your vocation is so important because you stand as an ambassador for Christ, even in those places. Um, and, uh, you know, you know uh, for us to uh, evangelize to others, you know, sometimes we have to play the long game and, and we're waiting to have these conversations with others uh, or, or looking for windows of opportunities to have these conversations with others. And you might think the gospel is not a... Uh, is not a super helpful uh, solution to some of these problems, but that's where we uh, underestimate the power of the gospel. And that's where we sometimes forget that the gospel is powerful, that the gospel changes the facts on the ground so that we can demonstrate that our God has won. And that's why we emphasize these truths. That's why we say, hey, we need to be evangelizing. Uh, and, and we need to, to, to care for others. Um, and sometimes that just means you listening and, and then trying to bring in the gospel where you can. Right? The gospel is the key because you're going to have people with different experiences, different emotions attached to this. And this is where you can say, hey, I have, you know, we're, well, potentially, you could say, hey, I actually have some thoughts on this and how we can help here. And and uh, using the gospel, right? If you believe that the gospel can change hearts, it can change lives. And that's why we hold out Christ to other people. Right? We hold out Christ to other people. What, what Pastor Ray said in terms of uh, CRT, intersectionality, right? It's, it is absolutely hopeless if your identity is found in the fact that you are oppressed. 
And there is nothing you can do about it except to hope that you can overthrow with the help of others. It's absolutely hopeless. It won't last. And that's why we need to give them Christ. Or we need to help them see that Christ loves them, Christ cares for them, Christ died for them, Christ rose from the grave for them, so that they can be free. So that they can be free from the wrath of God against all unrighteousness. And so that they can live changed lives here on this earth. Right? All, almost everything that you can think about in this life that we enjoy is a result of faithful Christians desiring to be witnesses in this world. Right? Science. Science is was primarily the field of Christians who desired to understand what God was doing. Oh, oh. <laughs> Hello. Um, Right, they were they were trying to understand what um, what what God was was doing in this in this world, what He was doing in our bodies and everything, and so that's why they were were trying to look at everything and, and whatnot. Uh, hospitals, hospitals were was the, the idea of Christians who were designed to, desiring to provide medical care for those who needed it. Schools were the ideas of Christians who desired for people to understand how to read so that they could read their Bibles. Right, almost everything that you can think of. Abolition, abolition included, was spearheaded by those who had a biblical conviction to love others. And so that's why the gospel is such a key thing in, uh, in the way that we uh, look at life. Now, uh, our next question is this. Is protesting acceptable in the eyes of God? And if so, what kind or level of protesting? So I answered this on one of the, uh, I think the very first one, I think this is a gray area because it depends on the context you're in. And I'll use a biblical example. For those who have been li listening to my series through Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, what they didn't, they were oppressed group of people, but what they did in order to win and able to be to thrive society was actually just to trust the Lord and, and, and just be faithful in that way. Um, in our context, in American context, uh, we have to understand that it's actually okay for you to protest. Generally speaking, if, if I was like speaking to like another person in another country, I might say no. I probably would say no because there's no rule built in that says you can protest. I think Christians, uh, part of obeying the law means that we can use even the liberties that's in the law. So protesting is one of those things, one of our rights as Americans. So we can take advantage of it. I think. Um, for us as Americans, if you uh, want to protest, you can protest in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. Um, you know, I'm like I have friends in the East Coast that are that always go to March for Life. That's a, that is a form of protest. Um, so it's not so much that like people, you know, and there's different protests for different things throughout America too. Um, if you feel like that's how the Lord's moving you uh, in that way, that's completely uh, you know, it's in your liberty to do so. Um, but there is a way that is um, sinful when you protest and a lot of it is just like you know the hurting of other people the the the, the verbal insults uh, to authority these things are not uh, christ honoring you know the bible tells us that our speech should be filled with salt and uh, so that we can answer people with the right words at the appropriate time and our conduct should be filled with love so even in our protest it should people should see us and notice that the way that we protest is different 
uh, it, it should be remarkably different from the way the, uh, the world thinks of protesting. Um, and I think that's the way, so you can protest. I do think it's fine in the context of US because again, it's part of our uh, constitution. But again, the question you ask yourself is if you are doing this protest, would anyone know that you're actually walking with the Lord? You know, when you're walking with the crowd and you're protesting, can people discern that you're actually walking closely with, with, the, with our God? Again, our greatest cry in society shouldn't be the change of structure, although that's fine. Um, we, could, we can protest in those things. Um, our greatest cry should be that people repent. Um, when we protest, like you know, a lot of people, a lot of Christians that do the walk for life protest, they're really protesting people that trying, the Christians that protest are trying to get people to understand that what they're doing is a sin and offensive to the Lord. And they're trying to save lives and all that. But that's really the main agenda why Christians wanted to protest against, you know, the Roe v. Wade decision and all of that. Um, it's because they feel that this is going to, this is a sin against the Lord and they're trying to get people to repent of that. Um, but when, you know, when we talk about like, you know, social injustice things, yeah, Christians have the liberty to do it. Uh, you have the liberty uh, to do it and you should do it in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. Again, we need to be salt and light into the world. So we have to be in the world to some capacity. But again, you have to think, is your manner, is your conduct, is in the way that you are different from the way that the world who does not have hope, they live without any sort of hope. And um, that's why they're protesting so angrily and hard because there's like all of the eggs of this one basket in this world. But we as Christians just want to be able to be, um, to help alleviate some type of pain, but understand that that's just, just like, that's not the main issue here. We want people to know Christ. Um, so I think it's okay to protest, but do it in a way that reflects Christ-likeness. Um, anything you want to add on, Roger? Yeah, so, um, yeah, I think uh, in, in addition to that, I think just being aware that sometimes there are consequences with protesting, right? Even if you are, um, even if you are doing it peacefully and, uh, doing it in a way that honors the Lord, uh, in particular with these protests, right, as you've seen on the news, there can be um, there can be people who wish to incite violence, um, and uh, they don't really care about peaceable demonstration. And so, if you get caught up uh, in a group like that, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, if uh, if they kind of come around where you're at and they cause trouble, it's there is a potential for you to face some consequences with that. And so, um, just just be aware that you might have to face some consequences with that. Um, uh, one of my uh, my pastor friends, uh, he has kids who are uh, and they minister in. Um, in uh in uh, central la and uh so and, and uh some some of his kids really wanted to go protest right after george floyd they really wanted to go protest because they felt like they had to say something they felt like they had to stand and he said you can go right you can go but just be careful because if you get caught up if uh if the if the violent uh people get uh, <clears throat> get near right then um then uh, you could get caught up with them and you might have to face consequences with them. So just be wise and understand that even if you are peace, uh, peacefully protesting, that you might still get caught up um, and you might have some consequences that you have to pay as well. So just just be uh, wise about that and, and ready to face consequences too if they come.
Next question is, does SFBC believe in institutional systematic racism? Do, they, do we believe that exists today in society that is against racial minorities? I think you have to define what that means, systematic racism or institutional racism. Um, I think there was a time where there really were like, like laws and those for the most part seem to be abolished. And like what Roger said earlier, there, some of the residual effects are still there. Um, but I, again, what Roger and I are, are always trying to stress is that even if the law is right and seems like impartial, the heart of the person can still be a racist. Like you can't regulate morality. Um, they can, they just find different ways to be racist. Um, so in a sense, there is a systematic sin issue in all of us that makes us racist. But in, in terms of like other actual laws in the place, I don't think so. Um, I could be wrong, but I think for the most part, there aren't any like, oh, Chinese people can't eat here or something, or, um, you know, Jewish people could, can't go to this beach or something like that. There aren't like laws like that anymore, um, which is a good thing. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a mercy of God that people, uh, you know, you, even a grace of God that people have abolished those type of laws. When it comes to the church, though, um, the church should never be racist. Uh, it should never be that, uh, because we understand Ephesians 2, we were separated from the world, we are brought near because of what Jesus has done. Jews and Gentiles are no longer distinct. Uh, they're, they're united in Christ. Like their ethnicity is still present, but what they cherish most and what they have is Jesus Christ. Um, so yeah, I, I think you know, from the person that went from Grace Church, it was predominantly white to SFBC, predominantly Asian, I think SFBC isn't um, racist or anything like that. I don't see in our church, I think, um, because, you know, our churches, for, for the most part, are defined by our love for scripture and for the Lord. And I think um, for all the visitors that's come from different, even you know, whatever ethnicity, they, one of the most common things I hear is that our church is very warm and welcoming. Um, so I don't really see that in our church, but I think there are churches that might be struggling with it in different ways. Uh, but I think for us, um, yeah, I think we're okay. And we just continue to love on those who come in to our church and love them the way that Christ would want them to love. Um, but in terms of institutional racism, I think you have to define the terms. I don't really see any laws right now in place, but unless, you know, unless I'm wrong, I, I think that's just my observation of the world. Um, Roger? Uh, yeah, not, not more much more to add to that, really. Um, you know, I, I think you know, when it comes to <clears throat> this idea of, you know, is, is there racism? Um, we just have to be careful of playing the race card always. We just have to be careful of that. Um, and, and to assume that there are laws that are out there that uh, are particularly racist. Um, uh, or, or if we want to use the more uh, accurate term, prejudice. Right? Uh, and um, especially because what we're what we're wanting to to recognize is that um, that ethnicity is uh, really the is really the the category of what we would uh, define um, racism in um, rather than racism. Uh, it, you know, it's it's partiality um, based off of ethnicity. Um, and uh, there's more that we can probably say on that, but um, I'm gonna kind of strain away from uh, from from uh, bibl uh, from a more uh, textual biblical answer. Uh, but 
that being said, we get to question to the next question. This is definitely more of a practical question. So um, I don't know if there's much Bible that we can bring into this one. But the, the question here is this. How do you guard yourself against stereotyping people you see? For example, seeing someone walk towards you at night of a certain race uh, or someone who is dressed poorly. Um, so this is uh, definitely a more practical question. It's a good question. Um, and, you know, when, when Pastor Ray and I got together to, to talk about uh, you know, just some of our thoughts on the questions, um, what we noted was that stereotyping is typically done out of fear. Right? Stereotyping is typically done out of fear. So we have to understand what's going, in our heart, going on in our hearts when we are stereotyping out of fear. Um, I understand that um, that at nighttime it can be scary, right? And you have no idea if someone's behind you, someone's in front of you. You don't know what people's intentions are and whatnot. Um, but we, we have to, uh, and, so, and so there's a there's a practical aspect of it where you have to be on guard, right? Or you should be on guard, um, and uh, you should be ready to protect yourself uh, if needed, right? But at the same time. You have to be careful uh, of sinful, uh, sinful assumptions about someone just because of their appearance. Right? You have to be careful of it just because of their appearance. Um, uh, just you know, recognizing that appearance isn't everything. Right? Uh, something that we, we know is that everyone's been given common grace by God. So we want to show graciousness to others. Um, you know, practically speaking, it really just comes down to just be mindful of your surroundings at all times right? and, and just be wise with what you choose to do. You know, for instance, um, don't go to the sketchy part of San Francisco uh, in, at nighttime. If, if you don't want to get hurt, right? try and avoid it if you can. Um, right? Or, or uh, a sketchy place, other sketchy places too. Uh, there's this one time where uh, I uh, actually, never mind. I'm not gonna tell the story. But you know, um, <laughs> um, but uh, ba basically, right? Just just be mindful of your surroundings. Um, maybe this is just me, but uh, if I'm walking at night, I'm I'm scanning everywhere. I don't care who you are. I don't care who you are. I'm scanning everywhere, um, and I, I just want to make sure that I can keep myself safe. Sometimes I even walk around with a knife in my pocket just because I don't know. Right? And it's just like, you, you just want to be safe, right? Just be, just be practical. Uh, just, just be aware of your surroundings. Right? And of, of course, obviously, you know, this is just, this is just some practical stuff, right? But, um, yeah, that's kind of like, it's kind of how you can guard yourself. Just assume, um, you know, just, just assume the best in everyone, right? But at the same time, be wise and protect yourself. Yeah. To add on to other, and if you do get jumped though, like if you get robbed and, you know, what does the Bible say to that? You love your enemies. If someone tells you, hey, give me your wallet, give it to them. If they want your stuff, it's okay. Uh, I had a friend that he was a seminary student uh, and he got robbed. At, uh, he got robbed and then the, guys, the guy was taking his wallet. He just shared the gospel. And, and we have to understand, like, when people take our stuff, it's not really our stuff anyways. And even our life is not our own. Uh, so if we lose it, if there is a right way to think about it. It's that we shouldn't be living in fear because 
if someone to take our life, praise the Lord, we get to be with the Lord. If someone take our stuff, praise the Lord, we still have life to be able to serve the people and lose our stuff. You know, that's between them and the Lord. Um, but our, but you know, trusting in the Lord, even if it's, even if we're wherever we are, you know, like, yeah, I'm like, as a parent, I'm paranoid all the time. I look at the swings. I'm like, this is designed to kill my kids. But, you know, <laughs> like it's, it's just one of those things where we have to understand, like, God is watching over us. But sometimes God will allow bad things to happen to us. Um, and we just have to be thankful uh, that the Lord, whether he takes our life or, keep, or keeps us here, um, we can praise the Lord. Um, a mature believer looks at trials and are thankful for them because even if, let's say, you know, we understand Genesis 50, verse 20, what God meant, what man meant for evil, God meant it for good. So even if someone hurts us and like somewhere down the line, someone shares the gospel, then they remember that encounter, praise the Lord. That like you know they they were they could they feel convicted of that one time I, I beat up that Asian kid, you know whatever <laughs> it's it's um it's 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 something that we need to be mindful of that um, part of the fear is fear of losing our stuff and losing our life and both we don't need to be afraid of because all that we have is loaned to us from the Lord and that includes our life. Um, next question. Uh, this is the next. This is like the last one in terms of the one that's sent in from previous and we have some new ones added uh, throughout this conversation um, what can the church and not just SFBC but the universal church do to help our black brothers and sisters um, uh, I think that's like uh, okay so I don't know like an expansion of that question how can the gospel be made to be manifest practically uh, now we're advocating for more social justice agendas that tend to consume more liberal churches but I am curious to have us think more on what we could be doing. So this goes back to the same thing I said about being a light in the world. Um, you you just have to make connections with like your your coworkers, your uh, friends, or just you know just ask questions. Um, ask questions with a heart of compassion. Um, you know, if you see someone, you know, even if it's like you don't know, just ask them. Hey, how are you doing? You know, can you tell me about your life? You know, how's it like? Um, being um, you know black in America for you at this time, um, you know, be compassionate in that way, uh, just so that we can, um, so that people can understand that you actually care about them. Um, in our culture, we're we're so easily, we're, we're very easily in terms of dismissing people, or categorizing people, or assuming, judging people. Uh, again, our Lord came from heaven to earth to reckon to restore a relationship between us and God. And we should be willing to do the same. Just like we want to be compassionate. We want to be loving and um, go and talk with people. Um, if we see someone that we don't know, just go. Whatever, keep your distance, whatever. Um, but yeah, just do what you can to be a light in the world. And again, this is why I said earlier, when I think that there's an apathy for us as a church that we don't really care so much about. Um, we don't really care so much about evangelism as much as we like. Um, we may say that we're evangelicals and we love the gospel, but unless you actually do something about it, there's, it's really, is a lack of love for the Lord. The joiner people, uh, last week, when we talked about Ephesus, it's, uh, they had all these apologetic things, but they lacked love. Uh, I think sometimes we might be the opposite. We claim that we have love and Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So that means we find people in our life, uh, to go and share the gospel with them and, and care for them, you know, find ways to ask good questions, find ways to follow up with them, you know, you know, exchange numbers or you know, social media accounts or something, you know, just find ways in which you can um, creatively to, to just develop good and godly friendships. Again, the answer is very simple. Just go for it. 
uh, if the Lord has given you a conviction to go and minister to certain people, you should go for it. But at the same time, don't feel guilty if the Lord doesn't provide um, certain people in your life. Um, that's okay. Uh, um, people in China are never going to have to deal with BLM or you know, racial justice because the majority of them are Chinese people, you know, um, but there are you know, Africans there or white people there, whatever. Uh, whatever context you're in, just uh, be mindful of your surroundings and then just, um, whether, whether, regardless of the race, just be able to be that very, be very intentional, be very uh, aware of your surroundings and be very intentional in developing those, those, those relationships with the with people. Um, anything you'd like to add, Roger? Yeah, so, you know, um, while, while I appreciate the spirit of this question, um, I think this is one of those areas where we have to be careful of assuming that, that all of our black brothers and sisters um, are, uh, are in, in these situations where they need our help. I think we have to be careful about that. Because if, if that is our mindset, if that's our presupposition, that every single black brother and sister is dealing with systemic racism in this country at this time, right? if that's our presupposition, and that they all need our help, that's actually quite offensive to those who are not in that category and not in that group. And so we wanna make sure that we don't lump them all in one group, all in one, uh, in one area. Uh, we wanna make sure that we're, um, that we're mindful of people on an individual level, right? We want, to ex we want to understand if they are hurting, right? If they are hurting, that's when we come alongside and, 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 uh, and we, we care for them in that way and we see what, how we can minister the gospel to them, how we can pray with them, how we can agree with them, how we can uh, weep with those who weep, right? It's an individual level activity. This is not something that you broadly apply to all uh, to all all black people, right? otherwise you're actually potentially guilty of being racist yourself or, or acting with a partiality yourself. Right? So we want to be really careful with how we think about uh, the immediacy of our need to respond in a particular way. And, and there's a reason why uh, we em we emphasize the gospel, right? Um, the uh, another part of this question that we kind of um, we kind of took out is was uh, it, it seems like answering with the gospel is kind of like a cop-out it's kind of like saying uh, be warm and be filled to someone who is hungry and and cold but the reason why the gospel is not a cop-out even though there are even some evangelicals who are saying if you don't provide an answer outside of the gospel you're a part of the problem uh, you know the reason why we say the gospel is key is because what we're trying to do is minister to hearts we're trying to minister to individuals and trying to care for them on an individual level so that we can show them hope. We can show them hope so that we can show them that their identity is not found in their skin color, that their future is not determined by where they grew up or how they grew up. Their future is determined by the hope that is found in the gospel. Right? And so the gospel is not a cop-out answer because it changes lives. Right? We can, and it's the, it's the impetus for meeting physical needs. It's the impetus for trying to 
to to help those uh, get equipped if they're if they are lacking. Right? The the answer is not. I might get in trouble for this, but the answer is not found in electing particular individuals in or out of office. Okay, the answer is not found in that because they're sinners too. If we do that, if we put our hope in helping people in the election of or uh, of a particular individual in or out of office, what have we done? We've placed our hope of salvation, our hope of life in that individual or in individuals or in laws. We can't put our hope in people. We can't put our hope in legislation. We put our hope in the Lord who alone can change people's hearts. Like Pastor Ray said, we cannot legislate morality. We can't stop people from being the way that they are. So we work on the hearts. We aim for the heart. And that's also why it's so important that we abide by 1 Timothy 2, too. Right? T-O-O. Right? Pray. Pray. Earnestly. Desperately. For everyone in our society, for our political leaders, for the people who are hurting, strive and, and strive to see how you, how you can come alongside. Right? But you don't know that unless you have personal contact. And that's why what Pastor Ray was saying was so helpful. Right? You need to know people. You need to go up to people. Right? You can't just assume blanketly that people are all in the same boat. Because they're not. And so you know, we, we just have to be careful of that. And um, and just mindful of the fact that not everyone experiences things in the same way, right? And so that's why the gospel is key. The gospel is key, and uh, you know um, it's always sufficient. It's always sufficient. And so now we gotta we have to think how can we now practically make the gospel a solution to one of the problems that we have? It's there. We just have to think about that. Ray, any thoughts? Oh, I agree. Um, yeah, just, uh, um, I agree with everything Roger said. Um, so now we're going to get to these two questions I've sent in to Roger and I. Um, I think I think some of these are, we've kind of touched on it. Um, so one of the questions: What are examples of racial prejudice that you've seen in our church? Uh, that's the first question. I've been here for three years. I haven't seen it. Um, Roger, you you grew up here. Have you, anyone's have you seen it? Um, nothing overt. Um, maybe some of our older saints who are in attendance uh, could could chime in, but um, but I do think that there are times where we can exhibit prejudiced behavior uh, in our fellowship, right? When we make when we make jokes that are inappropriate, uh, when we tease each other based off of ethnicity, right? Sometimes it's uh, it is. Um, it is among people of like ethnicity, right? but that's still not right exactly. Um, so I think that we have to be careful about that, uh, to be mindful about the way that we joke around, and um, uh, and and that goes that goes um, that goes all 
all around, right? Um, and uh, we just have to be super careful about our speech, right? Making sure that it edifies and builds up, that we're not tearing down. It's hard, you know, we all, we're all gonna struggle, we're all gonna make assumptions and whatnot, and that's where we have to be careful. So any overt examples of racism and or prejudice that we've seen in the church, not exactly, but uh, at least nothing hateful, nothing done out of spite, but definitely amongst friends, some uh, some things that are inappropriate that would probably not uh, honor the Lord. So uh, if that applies to you, just be mindful of that. Um, okay, and then, um, you know, how. Uh, the second part of that question is, what are some passages that we can look at to assess prejudice in our own hearts? Um, oh, I think yeah. one that comes to mind is like, you know, we're called to love your neighbor as ourself. So that's a, I mean, we know that verse, but what does that mean? So it's like, okay, if you were to treat someone, how would you want to be treated? And do you hold that standard consistently to everyone, regardless of their background? Because uh, if you do, then good. That means you do love your neighbors as yourself. But if you don't, then that means there is some sort of prejudice going on in your own heart. The question is, what is it? And if and if it's a racial thing, you need to repent. If it's uh, a jealousy thing, you need to repent. Whatever sinful heart attitude that you have, you need to get you need to, um, you need to cut that out of your life and and actually love on them. Saying that like, oh, I don't hate them, but I don't do anything nice or loving to them. That's like that James thing, where like that's a cop out answer. Where like. Uh, well, you're you're um, you're hungry and you don't feed them. That's that's kind of uh, what happens when you don't love people consistently. And which just goes back to the thing about favoritism. Um, if there's someone that you like more than others, that's favoritism. Uh, you should treat people consistently. Now I know that there are, you're going to have some people that are closer to you just because you develop maybe longer and deeper relationships. That's fine, but you should still love on everyone the same way as you would your best friend. Um, you should make time for them. You should, you know, if they have a need, you're like, okay, I don't want to make time for you because, you know, we're not like best buds. You know, that's that's favoritism. We're called to love everyone with the way that Christ loves. Um, yeah, I think that's one way to assess uh, just your heart attitude. What comes to mind when you think of certain people? Um, and if it's something sinful, then repent. Yeah, and that's so true. Love is is definitely the indicator. It's the measuring stick by which we figure out um, uh, you know, how we are viewing other people. And this can actually even transcend uh, our talk about ethnicity, right? Because our love for one another, Jesus says in John 13, 35, it's by our love for one another that other people will know that we are his disciples, right? That's how the world will know that we are his disciples. Um, but it's not just the people that we want to love, it's also our enemies as well. In Matthew 5, verses 43 to 48 jesus says this on the sermon on the mount you have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy but i say to you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven for he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous for if you love those who love you what reward do you have do not even tax collectors do the same if you greet only your brothers what more are you doing than others do not even the gentiles do the same therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect brothers and sisters when we talk about loving one another and being willing to love your enemies and to pray for your enemies this is how you can tell whether you have prejudice in your own heart are you willing not just from lip service, but are you willing to strive to love your enemy 
like Christ commands you to. And that's why I say this transcends ethnicity. Are you willing to love your enemy like Christ commands you to? And this is actually something that uh, if you talk about evangelicals, uh, particularly black evangelicals who hold to uh, a very prejudiced view against white believers or other Christians, uh, it doesn't have to be necessarily uh, limited to white believers, but, but other Christians, do they love them? Do they pray for them? Because I can, I can assure you that there are a lot of people out there who call themselves Christians, who do not love their fellow Christians, who are prejudiced towards their fellow Christians, solely on the basis of their skin color. And we're not talking about, we're not talking about white people who are showing hatred towards black people. We're talking about black people who refuse to love their white brothers and sisters who hold it against them that they're white. That is not acceptable within the church. It's not acceptable at all. And yet, what we see in the church is division and a, and, and a desire for, uh, for people uh, who are of a different ethnicity than black people to repent of their privilege. Brothers and sisters, you don't repent of your privilege. You repent against sin of sin, right? Actual sin. And if we sin against one another, then we ought to forgive one another. But that is not what you see in the writings of black evangelicals who have bought into the Black Lives Matters movement. What they want is reparations. What they want is, um, what they want is vengeance, right? Think about the angry reactions to some of the cases that we've seen. They don't want they're not trying to, to love on others. They don't care about the gospel going forth to those who've committed crimes. They want vengeance. And so that's why this is so key. Do you love your enemies? Do you pray for those who persecute you? That's how you determine uh, whether, um, what, whether uh, we have prejudice in our hearts. Okay. So um, that's a great question. Thank you so much. Um, this will be our last question tonight because we're getting kind of late and um, I do have to kind of uh, talk to the joiners people a little bit later so I don't want to take up so much of your time but it's Friday night so you guys will sleep in tomorrow but uh, here's the here's last question if you have any other question that we weren't able to answer feel free to email us um, so this I think this is a follow-up to the to the question we said earlier about in terms of systematic racism or institutional racism the question is does systematic racism or institutional racism depend solely on laws though doesn't the very concept of systematic race imply that there is some kind of fundamental issue at root? And the answer is yes, and that is sin. Um, the world doesn't acknowledge that, that it's ingrained in an individual they are actually evil. Uh, laws, evil laws are made by evil men. That, that's just the reality of living in a fallen world. Um, when Martin Luther King did his march, it was actually a bunch of clergymen that wanted to do it because he realized that the churches are not living up to the biblical standard. Uh, he's trying to call white churches to understand what the Bible has to say about people being made in the image of God. Um, so he's trying to, uh, he, was at, he wasn't necessarily attacking the system, although that he, he did try in terms of here's some reforms, but his, his main concern, at least the initial uh, reason why he protested was that the churches were not doing these things. 
the churches were the one that, that were racist. The churches were the one that were um, unloving to their African-American brothers. And that is because of something's wrong with the heart. And he tried to use, a, you know, a biblical understanding of peace to, uh, and, you know, understanding of justice to help, you know, kind of make that movement. Um, so are there institutions, are institutions solely based on laws? No, because we know that you can, I mean, you could put a law right now that says you cannot be racist and people will still do it. And also an absence of law could also mean that people are racist. Uh, so the concept of systematic theology, uh, racism uh, does imply that there is something wrong, uh, but it may not be overt. But again, the issue is with the heart, which is what Roger and I have been trying to stress out the whole time, um, that we want people to understand that we were born hating people because we ultimately were born hating God. We were all born uh, loving self and have our own self-interest in mind um, and not doing things for the glory of God. But what, uh, and we know the gospels, what changes us to think uh, the opposite, to think, okay, now we're, we're, we have new birth. We are, we are now called to a higher um, form of love and lifestyle. That is what God ex reveals to us in scripture. So, to, uh, you know, and there's a kind of like a follow up to this a little bit through the message about like, what about if a president or some leader uh, is, is racist and they're um, in government, does that mean, does that count systematic racism? Again, I think when we, when we define systematic racism, we're talking strictly about a law that's in place. A, a person can be racist and, and not even exercise the, uh, and they, they could in their heart hate a particular race, but not actually like do anything about it. It could be their own heart, but the Lord knows and that's where the danger is. You can, you can on the surface seem like you are not racist, but in your heart, the Lord knows. That's why I think we're always calling people to do some introspective looking in their own heart. Like, do you know that you are a sinner from the heart? You know, Matthew 5, and Beatitudes, it says that, or Matthew 5, it tells us that if you even look at someone and there's anger in your heart, that's murder in the eyes of the Lord. Um, so, you know, racism, whatever law is out there, it's, it's because it's, it's, it's a fruit of what's going on in their own heart. They hate people, so they'll make a law against it. Um, so even if the laws are removed, the heart of hatred could still be there. Um, so, yeah, I think the, doesn't the concept of systematic racism imply that there's some kind of fundamental issue at root? Yeah, it's because people, humanity, are born with a sinful disposition. Um, anything you'd like to add, Roger? Yeah, you know, I think um, what, I, what I had mentioned earlier about oppression and whether it is actually oppression uh, applies here as well. Because when we're talking about systemic racism or institutional racism, right, when you ask people for definitions of that, what they're going to say is, uh, systemic racism is uh, is is how ideas of white superiority are captured in everyday thinking at a systems level. It takes into a, the big picture of how society operates rather than looking at one-on-one -on -one interactions, right? But when you say uh, that this is systemic, it is down deep down to the root issue, right? It's kind of like, well, are you sure though? Right? Are you sure? Are you sure it's systemic racism, or perhaps uh, was is, is there another explanation for it, right? And people who buy into the social justice movement will take what I just said and they'll be like, "No, like that's that's wrong, man. Like <laughs> what you just said there, uh, that just shows your ignorance, right?" And, but see, here's the thing: if you walk around with a systemic racism chip on your shoulder and you view everything in through the lens of systemic racism, then everything's going to be racist. 
right? If you, if you uh, for instance, uh, systemic racism is often uh, is often uh, um, uh, accused of it being in the hiring process of people, right? And, and it's kind of like, um, sure, there might they might have statistics there, right? But could it just be that you have a very bad resume, right? Could it be that you have a bad resume and it's not as strong as someone else's? And then you'd say, well, that's the problem of uh, systemic racism in the education system. Well, it could be, right? Or it could be that they were just poor students, right? You have to be super, super careful about what you define as systemic racism, right? Because there's a lot of assumptions and presuppositions that you are putting into that when you're saying the whole system is wrong, right? Even that statement by Black Lives Matters that America was built on the back of backs of slaves. That's not true. That's not true. And if I just made you angry right now, you better like, you know, why? Why did I make you angry? Why do you think that that is true? Right? Go check the history. Was this country built off of the backs of slaves? In reality, right? Slavery was a part of our history. It is a terrible stain on our national history. Absolutely. Right? But is everything in this country built off the backs of slaves? That is an overstatement, a gross overstatement at that. Right? So we have to be careful, super, super careful about what we call racism and how we think about these things. If, if you're quick to apply labels and to jump to conclusions and whatnot, that's what that's that's where uh, that's where we have to pull you back and say, what is the truth? And if you don't want to deal with the truth, then that's not something we can help you with. Right. But what is the truth and what does God say? How can we help people understand that there are going to be times where you will suffer? How are we going to help people understand that there are going to be times when you are poor? Right? Job suffered immensely. He got no, uh, he got no uh, explanation for his suffering. It just came out of nowhere. How do, how do we explain tragedy like that? How, how do we explain uh, trials that people go through? And, you know, um, lack of access because of, of finances. What that what that belief in, is is getting at is everyone needs to have the same thing. Right? Everyone in America needs to be able to have access to a, a smartphone that has five G access. They need to have a computer. They need to be able to have this, that, or this, or that, 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 that. Why? Because we're America, and we shouldn't have inequality here. Everyone should have these things. That's not true. Not everyone should have anything. Right? We have to be careful about rights and desires because it's the lusts of the heart. Right? It's the lust of the heart. James 4 says this. The lust of the heart is the reason why there are fights and quarrels among us. It's the lust of the heart that are, um, that are there. And so we have to be super, super careful about what we define as rights and privileges and, and, and whatnot, right? And, and, um, and, you know, when we talk about system, systemic racism, we have to be careful of those broad overarching statements that oversimplify things, 
Because a lot of times, the sin that is in our hearts stems from our own members. It says here in James 4, 2, you lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And when you ask and do not receive, it's because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And so it says later, um, you know, God jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. And so he gives us greater grace. Therefore, it says, God gives us a greater uh, grace. Uh, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to, to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. When we talk about rights and privileges, when we talk about being denied certain things, I think what we have to recognize is the only thing that we deserve in this life is the wrath of God against our sins. That's the only thing you deserve. And we know that from, uh, we know that from uh, the Westminster Catechism, right? What do I deserve? Nothing but the wrath of God. But it's because of God's grace that we are able to experience salvation. It's because of God's grace that uh, that we all get to get to experience the things that we experience. And so we humble ourselves. If we humble ourselves, then we understand that the world isn't out to get us. Right? We might think it is, but it's not. The world is not out to get us. The world doesn't care who you are. It doesn't care who I am. None of us are important. We could die today, be gone tomorrow. The only people who will miss us is our families. Right? Nobody cares about us. We're not important. Get that out of your minds. Humble yourselves before holy God. Recognize that He is the one who we matter to. Right? And, and that when, when it comes to what to, to these things that we experience, it's all it's all by His grace that we experience these things. Right? So we gotta humble ourselves. We gotta recognize, like, yeah, we 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 just gotta recognize that and let Him exalt us. Let Him bless us. Don't demand it for our own pleasures, but to rely on Him and to trust in Him. And if we get it, great. If not, still great. At least we have our salvation. At least we have Christ. Right. Amen. All right. Um, so with that, let me close our time in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for just questions that were submitted. Uh, it's a, really a testament to uh, the flock really wants to learn and how to honor you and be a light in this world. And we do hope that was, uh, this was helpful. Uh, that ultimately we submit our will to your word and be discerning, knowing that not everything uh, that the world says that seems good actually is good. Uh, may we think that, uh, through things biblically and may we uh, honor you with our life. Lord, give us a greater heart for evangelism. 
We know that this is a complicated issue, but there are things that aren't complicated, and that is that we want to be, um, that we want those that who do not know you to come to saving faith. And Lord, there are people that are saved, that are hurting, and may we um, be intentional, and may we be proactive in caring uh, for their needs. Um, may we lay aside our own comfort and interests, um, time, resources, whatever it may be, uh, may we give those things, and as I know these things are stewardships, there is a stewardship from you to serve, to glorify you. Lord, thank you for this time that we have. Pray these things your son's name. Amen.